Well, if you want to open your Bibles, we are going to be continuing our study in Hebrews chapter 11. Last week, I began by introducing Abraham. Abraham is the perhaps one of the most prominent people in this chapter because he is mentioned as an example of faith in two different locations. It's all part of one section, but as I mentioned last week, one aspect of his life is mentioned as an example of faith, and then later there's another aspect of his life where he is mentioned. In fact, in our series, this doesn't have a traditional outline because it's just examples of faith one after the other. He's actually the fifth example. We started with the aspect of belief in creation as an example of faith, creation by God. Then we covered Abel, Enoch, Noah. And now in verse 8 of Hebrews chapter 11, we begin to look in more detail at this man, Abraham. For obvious reasons, I can't reteach last week. If you want any additional information, you could go back and listen to it. It's on our church website. But I tried to establish, my focus was to show how significant Abraham was in the life of a Jewish person because the original recipients of this letter were Jewish people who had come to see Jesus as Messiah. And so by referencing Abraham, the writer of Hebrews was really going to the person who was at the pinnacle of all of Judaism. In fact, he was the father of Judaism. He was their patriarch. He was their founder. He was the greatest hero in the life of the Jewish people. In fact, I asserted last week, apart from Christ, Abraham may be the most important person in the Bible. Not the greatest man, that was John the Baptist. Not perhaps the most far-reaching effect was Adam, who brought the entire human race down by sin. But Abraham is incredibly significant. He is a continual reference point throughout the Scriptures. In fact, he was so great that I went through a dialogue in John chapter 8 where Jesus was arguing with Jewish leaders, and at one point, as they were wondering, what are you saying, who are you? They said, surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. That was in John eight fifty three. The point was, in the Jewish mindset, Abraham was the pinnacle. He was the greatest hero. He was the greatest champion of the faith. In fact, in Matthew 1, when there's a genealogy of Jesus designed as a book to prove that Jesus is the Messiah, the starting point of the genealogy isn't Adam, it's Abraham. Because he was just the central starting point of everything for a Jewish individual. And I also mentioned that the reason Abraham is included in this chapter, in verses 8 through 10 in Hebrews chapter 11, and then later again he's included, is not for us to go, wow, what a great guy. The reason is because he's an example for us. There's every expectation on the part of the writer of the book of Hebrews that what Abraham could do by faith, we can do by faith. That because Abraham could live by faith and trust God, we can live by faith and trust God. Abraham is just one of many of the great cloud of witnesses that are supposed to be an inspiration to us to press on, to endure, to keep moving forward. So this was a general backdrop that I gave you to introduce it. This morning we're going to get into our text and begin to explain it a little bit more. Just follow along with me. I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to read verses 8 through 10. The scriptures say this. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out 
not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Now this morning, as I get into this, we're not going to get past verse 8. I thought I might be able to cover more, but it never works that way when I start writing out my messages But there is a tremendous amount of truth in verse 8, a tremendous amount of truth that has direct relevance to our daily lives. Even though the account is of a historical event that occurred thousands of years ago, I say this later in my notes, I don't know why I'm saying it now, but it's in my head, I think this is one of the most relevant verses for you living out your daily life. I'll explain that, but this simple verse has a lot of relevance for how we live a life of faith. Now, the start of verse 8 is the same as every other verse in this list, by faith. By faith, Abraham. Everything Abraham is commended for is tied into that concept, as we would expect in this chapter. It's all about Abraham's faith. But to look at his faith in a historical context, I'm going to be looking back at Genesis chapter 11 and 12. So hold your place in Hebrews 11 and turn in your Bibles all the way back over to Genesis chapter 11. Got a lot of cross-references this morning. It's inevitable when you have a, a text like this. But I want to go back to the first mention of Abraham. Now, I might go back and forth saying Abram and Abraham. It's the same man as you are well aware. Just sometimes... Before his name was changed by God, he was referred to Abram, and I might not always have it consistent, but we're talking about Abraham. And if you look at verse 26 of Genesis chapter 11, we begin to see a reference to where Abram comes on the picture. Abraham comes in the picture. Verse 26, Terah, a man named Terah, lived 70 years and became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now, these are the records of the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran became the father of Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldeans. Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran his grandson, and Sarah his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan, and they went as far as Haran and settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. So this is simple background information of where Abram comes from, where Abraham comes from. He lived in the land of Ur of the Chaldeans, it's called. His father's name was Terah. He had a nephew named Lot, who we understand from Scripture is going to have a big role. His wife was Sarai, later to change to Sarah. And at one point, Abram's dad, Terah, and the entire family clan moved to a place called Haran. It's interesting, he had a son named Haran, and he moved to a place called Haran. And Abram's dad died at the age of 205 years, a good long life. I'm going to come back to Abraham's background in a moment because there's some interesting information we're going to glean here, but let's look on in verse 12 
because chapter 12, verse 1, is the direct referent of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. Genesis 12, 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Verse 4. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So again, we have the factual backdrop that the author of Hebrews is using as an illustration of a man of faith. Now, at this point in my preparation, I was throwing a curveball, and I'll show you what the curveball is in just a few moments. But for now, looking where we are in Genesis chapter 12, God spoke to Abram, who by, as far as we know, was doing fine. And God said, go. And Abraham went. He was already an older man at 75, but he listened. Now, I'm going to have you turn for a second because there's some context here that kind of throws things. This is the curveball. As I was reading and studying, I came across a particular reference in Acts chapter 7. So if you can hold, you're running out of hands. I don't borrow somebody else's hand. Hold your place in Genesis, hold your place in Hebrews, and turn over to Acts chapter 7. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen is about to become... A martyr. He has been accused and he is going to have an opportunity in essence to state a defense and he begins preaching a sermon. It was a powerful sermon, the outcome of which resulted in his immediate death. It wasn't a good response. It wasn't a people-pleasing message. But in Acts chapter 7, we see this as he begins to speak in verse 2. And he said, hear me. Brethren and fathers. So he is talking to Jewish brethren. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had him move to this country in which you are now living, but he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. And yet, even when he had no child, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him. This was the curveball, because I wasn't thinking about this reference. But this reference, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives us additional information that we don't see in Genesis 11 and 12. And that we don't necessarily see when we walk into Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. Now, I think there is a reasonable explanation of this, but I don't want to overlook a scripture like this that is so significant. I think from what Stephen said, we can deduce that there was a time before Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, that God spoke to Abram. Because... Stephen is very clear. Before Abraham ever moved to Haran, God spoke to him. It's also clear from chapter 12, verse 1, that God was speaking to Abraham after his father had died. 
So what you see here is a situation where the Holy Spirit in the New Testament provided additional factual information that we did not have, and it lets us know that God spoke to Abraham twice. Once before he ever moved with his family to Haran, before his dad died, and then what Genesis 12:1 records is a second time when God spoke to Abraham when he was already living in the place called Haran. Now, I don't want that to confuse us, but I want, it to, I want to be clear. That's what the Scripture says factually has occurred. And so in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8, is talking about Abraham being called and him going, I believe from the context and from study that that's a direct reference to Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, not the account in Acts. So what do we make of this? Abraham was a man, and God spoke to him more than once. In fact, what we see is the likely reason that Terah moved his entire family to the town of Haran is because God had spoken to Abraham and said, you're going to move from here. But now I want to talk a little bit more about why that's so significant. Because the story here is not just that God talked to Abraham and Abraham said, okay, I'll follow. I want you to understand a little bit about Abraham's background. Because it says a lot about the sovereignty of God in ever choosing anyone. Now, I came across a reference. I was surprised I didn't see it in more of my study, but there's a reference that bears on this. And I'm not going to ask you to turn there because you definitely are out of hands, and I don't want people taking their shoes off. But we're going to look at a single verse. I'm going to read it to you. You can write down the reference. It's Joshua 24.2. Joshua 24.2. Now, Joshua is speaking to the nation of Israel, and he shares some information with them. Joshua 24.2 says this. Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, From ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor. And they served other gods. And they served other gods. Here's the point. Abraham was raised in a pagan family with a father worshiping pagan gods. That was his family legacy. He wasn't a good kid going to Sunday school on a weekly basis. He wasn't someone that already had exposure to God. As far as we know from Scripture, Abraham was a pagan Worshipping pagan gods just like his father and his father before him. And God called a pagan. It's clear Abraham would not have been called because Abraham was worshipping the one true God. He had no reference to the one true God. His family worshipped other gods. Pagan idols. Idolatry. From scripture... Abraham was called by God for no reason other than God chose to call Abraham. God chose to call a pagan out of a pagan family away from pagan gods to become the centerpiece of redemptive history. Isaiah 51, 1 and 2, just write the reference down. Isaiah 51, 1 and 2 describes this calling this way. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, who seek the Lord. 
Look to the rock from which you were hewn, and to the quarry from which you were dug. What does he mean by that? Verse 2. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who gave birth to you in pain. When he was but one, I called him. Then I blessed him and multiplied him. God took the initiative when Abraham was just one man in a pagan family, in a pagan land, with pagan gods all around him, and God talked to Abraham. What Jesus said to his disciples could be equally applicable to God's relationship with Abraham. Jesus said this in the beginning of John fifteen sixteen. He said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Miraculous that God reached down into a pagan land amongst pagan people, someone who had a family legacy of worshiping pagan gods, and said, I choose you. Put some context on the remarkable nature of the faith Abraham had. So again, it's likely that the reason Terah and Abraham and Lot and Sarai ever moved to the place called Haran is because God initially spoke to Abraham and said, I want you to go. That's what Acts 7 is recording. That's what Stephen is talking about under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So Abram, Abraham did what God said and the entire family moved. Now, we come back to our text, putting all this in the right frame of context. And what we see in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8, is the second time, at least, that God spoke to Abraham. At least it's the second time it's recorded in the Scripture, God speaking to Abraham. And what we see is this reference, by faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed. By going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. So right there it's amazing that Abraham would ever obey a God that he had never heard of. So by the time this reference occurred, he had heard of God. And so now God speaks to him again. We don't know all the details of the intervening years of what happened other than that his father died. But Abraham was called a second time. He obeyed. In fact, the construction, I'm not a Greek grammarian, but if you study this and you can learn from others what the construction of the phraseology of when he was called, obeyed, how that comes together, makes it clear that this was an immediate response. This was immediate obedience. The text is saying that Abraham's obedience accompanied immediately the calling. One commentator used the phrase spontaneous. The notion was as soon as God spoke and made it clear, I want you to do this, there was no debate. There was no wondering. Abraham acted. What's fascinating is he acted even though God hadn't told him much of the details. Second half of verse 8, and he went out not knowing where he was going. God didn't lay out a detailed chronology saying, here's what I've got for you in store. You're going to go here, you're going to go here, you're going to go here. At this juncture, all God said was go. And Abraham obeyed because he had faith. This really ties back into the language at the beginning of chapter 11 that talks about what faith is. Verse 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. 
God told Abraham, go, I'll give you an inheritance. Abraham couldn't see it. He didn't know where it was. He still went. Because he was convinced that this was the voice of the one true God who was making a claim on his life, and he had no other response other than say, okay. Genesis 12 explains it, and God just said, go to the land which I will show you. In other words, go, eventually I'll show you where when you arrive. You could almost imagine the dialogue between Abraham and his family. The language suggests it was something like God saying, go, I'll tell you later where you're going, go. And Abraham immediately told Sarai and Lot, grab your stuff, we're out of here. Got to go. Um, why are we leaving again? God told me to go. Again? Where are we going this time? I don't know. Pack up. Let's go. That was faith. This was not someone who had a lifetime from the time on his father's knee, a relationship with God. He, by God's supernatural working in his heart, had faith. God initiated a relationship, and the consequence of that relationship was that Abraham wanted to obey the voice of God. Abraham, in our day, you know, he packed the car and he was on the interstate going. Forget the GPS. Eventually we'll stop. I don't know where. Now, let's sort of set the table and let's look at the implications of this for our lives. There's a lot of implication here. But the more I've studied this, the more I've become convinced that this is really a text that you could look and say, this is going to be the pattern of my life, and I can promise you, if you are operating by faith, you would please God. Again, Hebrews chapter 12 makes clear why all this is in the Bible. Since we have so great a cloud of witness surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. That's the whole point of this account of Abraham being here. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed. He went out not knowing where he was going. The nature of my ministry here at Lakeside takes different turns. Lately, I have been doing a tremendous amount of counseling of hurting people. I almost did an entirely different message this morning to tell husbands to love their wives and to tell wives to honor their husbands and respect them because of all of the sin that I have seen that is destroying relationships. But the more I thought about it, the Lord, not in an audible voice, but I was convinced, no, I need to stick with Abraham. And then as I'm studying and preparing, suddenly it jumps out to me how relevant this is to what I was doing. Here's what I am constantly telling people who are hurting. Certainly there's an admonishing side. Some people... There's a particular text, I think it's First Thessalonians 5.14. Admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. Admonishing the unruly is telling people who are sinning, stop. But I've been dealing with a lot of people who are faint-hearted and who are weak, and I'm continually telling them the same thing, obey what God says. But it's hard. Because I cannot and I would not... And I don't need to promise 
But I don't know the outcome. So many false teachers stand up and say, if you do this, the outcome is guaranteed. Your life will change. Your circumstances will change. That's not biblical. Your circumstances may never change. My hope to God's children is that even if your circumstances don't change, God will be there with you. Which is why I'm exhorting people, obey, trust God. And unfortunately, the nature of how we're wired is such that our eyes mess us up. Because we want to obey based on what we see. Whereas Abraham is the beginning and the pinnacle of a faithful example because he couldn't see it, he did it anyway. Counsel many wives who have mean, uncaring husbands. Yet I can only point that wife to a scripture that's very clear, 1 Corinthians 7.10, for example, but to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. I didn't make this up. This is scripture. And I see people and they think, well, that, surely they can't apply to me. My husband is a jerk. And I point them to 1 Peter 3. One and two, in the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word. Stop right there. That's every situation where I'm dealing with. That they may be won without a word by the behaviors of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. So even to a wife in a bad marriage, I have to tell her, be chaste, be respectful, be submissive. What I am actually telling that wife is be like Abraham. Because I can't promise you where God's going to take this. But I can promise you if God has commanded you to do this in obedience, God will honor his word. He will sustain you even when it's hard. He will pick you up when you are distraught. He will surround you with brothers and sisters in Christ who can come alongside you and help you. I've told many wives, if your husband ever touches you, call the police because God has given the police to punish evildoers. But even in that, what I'm really telling them is trust God that he loves you. And you can't see what God is going to do. And God hasn't told me and he's not told you, here's going to be the outcome. Endure it for another month. Endure it for another week. And it may be the rest of your life. It goes the same way with a husband who's frustrated with his wife. And I've dealt with many of those. I point to God's word. As I've heard how horrible their wives are and how terrible they are and how ungodly they are. I look at scripture and I go 1 Peter 3, 7. You husbands in the same way live with your wives in an understanding way. As with someone weaker since she is a woman. And show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. I can't promise that husband his wife will ever change. I can tell him God expects you to honor her no matter what. And I can go over to Ephesians and show him that the command is given multiple times. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Christ didn't love the church because the church was lovely. We're a bunch of rebels. We were a bunch of pagan sinners. It's an aside. I'm astounded how many husbands are puzzled because they say, well, I don't feel like God's close to me. Well, I guarantee you he's not close to you. He's not even hearing your prayers because you're not even honoring your wife. The whole point of that, so your prayers won't be hindered. If you don't have that relationship with your wife, you don't have that relationship to God. And if you think you do, you're just 
fooling yourself. My point is this. If we are Christians, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then according to the Word of God, it's because you have faith. And if Abraham, by faith, could obey God's promise, even when he didn't know what it entailed, he didn't even know where he was going, he packed up and went, our obedience should be the same, and it can be the same, because we have faith. The Bible says, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Can I tell you, we miserably fail in that area, because we want to walk by sight. I understand how hard it is to follow in Abraham's footsteps because I know the struggles I have. But can I assure you God's not playing some type of sadistic game because he wants to torment you? If you are his child, he is lovingly conforming you to the image of the Savior, whatever your life circumstances And I know there is hurt and there is pain and we still live in a fallen world where even other believers can hurt us and cause us pain. But I would say to you from Scripture, follow Abraham's example, even when you don't know what God's going to do. I've had more than one person say to me, well, I understand what the Scripture says, but I've talked about that before. It drives me bananas. Not because I'm angry with them, but because I know they are not going to live by faith. That word but means my circumstances transcend the authority of God because mine are different. God didn't plan for this one. Well, I understand that's for otherwise, but look at my husband. He's the worst. Well, I understand that's the command for husbands, but you don't understand the torment of my wife. Let me assure you, you can be obedient immediately to the word of God if you're a child of God. If you're not a child of God, I encourage you this morning to repent and believe. Understand that sinners, apart from Jesus Christ, have no hope of salvation. Just as God reached down into a pagan land and called out one man, I pray that you would recognize that Jesus sent his son to redeem sinners. Cry out to God for mercy. Ask that the blood of Jesus Christ that he shed on the cross for sinners would cover your sins so you can become a child of God. If you are a child of God, I encourage you to walk by faith. As we go through the next few verses, we're going to see some reasons, some ways to think to help with this process. Because there's some additional explanation given. But this morning, let me encourage you. Don't base your obedience on what you see. Don't expect God to treat you differently than he treated Abraham. God says obey, even though we don't know where it leads. We can trust him, like Abraham. And if God tells us to obey, we can follow. Let me close our time this morning in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I am painfully aware of my limitations in conveying truth. And yet, Lord, I'm also confident that your Spirit can take your Word and transform your children. 
Lord, I know I need this transformation. Lord, we all need to walk by faith. We need to live obediently. Lord, this is a painful world. People die. People hurt us. There are physical challenges, financial challenges, work challenges, relationship challenges. And yet, through it all, we're supposed to fix our eyes on Jesus. Lord, help us to do that. Help us to be able to live by faith like Abraham. Lord, help us to follow you even when we don't know where you're taking us. Lord, apart from you, we are helpless. We are hopeless. Lord, I pray that you would convict our hearts, transform us, so that we can live lives that bring you great glory. I ask all of these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.